do you bring it up? There we go. Okay, there we go. Not 42, pink or blue. What a crazy title for a sermon. Don't worry, though. You'll see the end. By the end, you'll see what it means. This is not, however... Oh, well, I was going to say this, and I... No. Uh, I was asked by some moms... I should back up. I was asked by some moms to preach on the guilt moms feel. And when I mentioned it to Pastor Hink, he said, that's great, why don't you do it July 28th? So here I am with it. I thought I'd have at least six months to do it, but okay. All right, this is not, however, going to be a sermon about parenting, nor will it be just to moms. I remember what it was like to sit in church as a single adult, and even as a married person who thought I would never have children, and hear sermons and illustrations that assumed that everyone would be a parent. I... Want every, I don't want anyone to feel left out this morning because the good news that we're going to hear is for everyone. But we're going to start with moms because that was the original request. But if you're not a mom, don't tune out. You'll see how this relates to all of us if you stick with us. To get started, who remembers seeing... Oh, it's this way, right? Yeah. Who remembers seeing this still shot of a video go viral a couple of weeks ago? Anybody see it? Just me? I'm the only one that saw it everywhere? Okay. Well, this was going around a few weeks ago of a mom catching her toddler as, I think it was a he, toppled off the fourth floor balcony of a building in Columbia. And uh, we're going to watch the video now. Andy, you've got that queued up? It is surveillance video, so there's no sound. Uh, but you'll see the mom... And the child get off in the elevator and a delivery guy with them. And they walk over and just kind of watch what happens here. So the guy goes down there to try to catch him in case the mom drops him. She doesn't drop him. People come out, come out. Get that. Okay. Think he's okay, or she. Um, how would you describe this mother? Quick. Panicked? Quick? Yeah. Quick is a good one. What else? Oh. On the ball? Vigilant? How about heroic reflexes? <laughs> Anything like that? Okay. Um, have you ever heard the wisdom, though, never read the comments? While many praised this mother for her heroic reflexes, there were also quite a few who condemned her for allowing her child to get close enough to the railing to fail, calling her a terrible mother. There is a prevailing culture of mom shaming that goes on in our society. I mean, this mom saved her kid's life, and she was still being harshly criticized. Dad shaming goes on too, as we'll see in a bit, but moms seem to receive the lion's share of the harshest criticism. Even when we're trying to encourage moms, we can still zero in on them unfairly. For example, some moms have felt encouraged to realize that when Jesus was 12 years old, Mary lost him for three days. Moms say to each other, maybe I'm not so bad. Mary lost the Son of God for three days. But wait, Joseph was there too. He lost track of Jesus just as much as Mary did. 
Why pin this all on her? Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. Do you think either of them felt guilt over this? I'm sure they did, especially as they frantically searched for him for those three days. As I talked with moms in preparation for this message, though, what I heard from them sounded more like shame than guilt. Let's make sure we understand the difference because they are not the same thing. Guilt is the feeling of conviction we feel when we have done something wrong. It is a feeling linked to behavior and is temporary in nature. For example, I yell at my kids when I should not have, or I didn't do something that I had promised someone I would do. I should feel guilt about that. That's healthy because the guilt we feel associated with our behavior should spur us to repent and ask for forgiveness from our kids or from whomever we have hurt and from God. If we do not feel guilt over behavior that truly needs to change, then we would never change. We would be toxic to live with, and that's not good for the people around us, and it's not even good for ourselves. John 16, 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. This feeling of conviction, then, is from God. None of us is perfect. That's why Jesus became human and lived among us, died on the cross, and then came back to life so that all that somehow allows our sin to be forgiven. I confess I don't understand exactly how that works. But as C.S. Lewis once said, I don't have to understand how it works in order to trust in Jesus any more than I have to understand how vitamins work in order to believe I will benefit from eating my dinner. What matters is that it works, even if we don't understand how. We recognize where we've fallen short or done wrong, then confess to God that we need him and ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 promises us that if we do that, we will be forgiven. We are then adopted into God's family. Now, even if we belong to God, why do we still feel guilty for not measuring up? Well, some of that really is guilt. We still mess up even after becoming Christians, and the Holy Spirit inside us is convicting us of when we've done wrong. The goal there is not to make us feel miserable, but to get us to talk to God about it, to ask forgiveness. Once we've done that, that feeling has served its purpose. God has forgotten our sin, and we should not dwell on it either. But some of what we're feeling is not guilt. It is a pervading sense of never feeling good enough, and that is not from God. That is shame. Shame is not healthy. Shame can be tied to a specific bad behavior that we've asked for forgiveness for, and so the guilt is gone. But for some reason, we just can't let it go and keep beating ourselves up about it. That's not healthy, and that is not from God. It is from Satan, who is called the accuser in Scripture, because he loves to accuse us, whispering in our ears that we are bad, that there is no way God or anyone else could really forgive us for that bad thing we did. But shame is often not even tied to a specific behavior. It is a pervading sense of unworthiness. It's hard to get rid of because it isn't tied to behavior, but to our very being. So it can become permanent if something doesn't intervene to stop the cycle. Some people who feel a lot of shame will try to overachieve, trying extra hard to always be better. Even if everyone else thinks they're awesome, they never feel like they're good enough. Other people try to deal with shame by giving up, becoming self-destructive, because, well, they're bad, and it's useless to be any different, so why try? 
Neither of these are healthy ways of responding to shame. Shame is not from God, but is from Satan. By the way, so you don't have to write furiously here, uh, this sermon is uploaded to this link. It's on the bulletin at the bottom of the empty notes there, so you don't have to worry about that. Now, now that we know the difference between guilt and shame, let's go back to the original request for this message and see where all this shame, because that is what it is, is coming from and why. That will help us to deal with it. Again, we'll start with moms. As we noted before, there is a prevailing culture of mom shaming in our society. People we know can be passive-aggressive about it. Oh, you're not staying for group time? What could be more important than your daughter? Or, I think it's fine for your child to eat that. It'll keep mine from doing so. Complete strangers on the internet, though, can be outright brutal. What a horrible mom you are! You must hate your kid or else be completely stupid. Okay? Moms are shamed about intimate things, like how they will birth their children, C-section, natural, drugs, and whether they will breastfeed or bottle feed. Either way. I adopted my children, yet one woman woman who knew that tried to shame me for not learning to breastfeed them. Moms are shamed for food. Yes, really. Moms are shamed for food, clothes, bedtime, and it doesn't go away as the kids get older. You let your daughter date at that age? Why would you even consider letting them go to that college? You must not have done a good job when your kids were children because look at how they're raising their kids now. In short, nothing is off limits, and it never goes away. All this shaming comes from everywhere, from friends, family, complete strangers. It's no wonder that many moms just feel a pervading sense of unworthiness and of not measuring up. Now, many moms think that dads don't feel shame, but they do. USA Today reported that according to polls, 52% of dads say that they have been shamed for something. That's not as many as moms, but over half is still a significant number. While mom shaming comes from everyone, dad shaming comes mostly from close family, according to the polls that USA Today took. The child's other parent or grandparents, relatively little of it comes from other sources. Sorry. I think my mouth is really dry. What can I do here? <laughs> okay, am I going too fast? Should I slow down? What dads get shamed for is also a bit different. Dads responding to the poll indicated that most of what they got shamed for was how they disciplined, what they fed their kids, for being too rough or not paying attention. Does that sound about right, guys? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Oh, goodness. While it is common for moms to lament about feeling like bad moms, dads are not as likely to volunteer that they feel shame, but they do. Both parents get shamed, but in different ways and from different sources. Interestingly, the USA Today article noted, eh, if I can get it in there, there, that this dad shaming... Okay, maybe for a reflection of traditional gender roles, where mothers are viewed as more natural caregivers and fathers are having limited parenting capabilities that need supervision or correction. Okay, could this also be the same reason moms are viewed so harshly by seemingly everyone? 
While fathers might need correction or supervision, mothers are supposed to just know what they should be doing. And if they don't, they must be bad mothers. Or worse, that they know better, but they must be too lazy, neglectful, or callous to care about doing what they really know is right. Fair or not, moms are held to a very high standard that in reality is impossible to meet, which makes us feel shame. And that is secular society. In Christian circles, parent shaming can be even worse. How many of you seen this meme? Just me again? Okay, I've, I've, okay oh, I see some hands now. Okay, these and similar statistics have been going around. Now, if you can't read all of that, I'll do it here. It's claiming that children, if children get saved first, only about 3% of the family gets saved. If it's the mother that gets saved first, it's 17%. But if it's dad, it's a whopping 93%. I've seen this meme go around on Facebook with captions that are both encouraging to men, see how important dads are, and others with captions that are trying to shame them by implying, step up, men. If you don't, your family is going to hell. This meme also makes moms feel horrible. If I have so little influence over my children spiritually, I saw one woman comment, then why even try? Fortunately, this meme isn't true. Now, I had the Mythbusters font on there, but apparently our system doesn't recognize it. So, okay. Anyway, (laughs) fortunately, this meme isn't true. The statistics are bogus based on one study done in a foreign country decades ago among Christians who never would have used the word saved to describe themselves anyway. Here's what I think. I think God can and does use anyone and everyone in helping others come to know Christ and grow spiritually, and any studies or memes which suggest he doesn't or can't should be suspect. Here's another meme that's been going around. Have you seen this one? Don't be shy. You can raise your hands. Okay. Okay. Let's read it, and I can't read it from that back screen, so I'll have to read it from this one. Our generation is becoming so busy trying to prove that women can do what men can do, that women are losing their uniqueness. Women weren't created to do everything a man can do. Women were created to do everything a man can't do. Okay. On the surface, that sounds like it's really encouraging to women. But what is it saying? If women were created to do what men can't do, what is it that men can't do? Have babies, okay, nurse them. Birth them, okay? All right. I saw one woman comment, if I can do, if I'm supposed to be able to do everything a man can't do, does that mean I can fly? But okay, that's not what this is talking about. All right. (laughs) While this meme is sneaky about its message, others come right out and say it. Raise your daughters from an early age that their highest and best calling is to be a wife and a mother. They will hear the opposite from culture. Okay, and this is why I think that Christian moms especially feel so much shame. If being a mother is my highest calling and I really don't know what I'm doing and feel like I'm not doing it right, then where does that leave me? Am I messing up my highest calling? And where does this leave single women who are not wives, obviously, or women who, for whatever reason, do not have children? Does this mean God blames them for that or that he made a mistake with their existence? According to the first meme, If they can't do the things that men can't do, does that mean they can't fulfill the purpose for which they were created? 
And according to this tweet, does that mean they cannot fulfill their highest calling? These attitudes and beliefs don't just put a heavy weight of shame on moms, but also on single adults of both sexes, though it seems to especially weigh on single women. It certainly did me. I grew up in churches that pushed the idea that being a wife and mother was women's highest calling. The problem was I didn't fit that picture. My little sister, on the other hand, she had checked off all those little boxes that define a good Christian woman. On my 27th birthday, I found myself sobbing alone, and I keep kicking this over, sobbing alone in my apartment. My prayer to God in the middle of all my sobs went something like this. My sister, who is five years younger than me, God, in case you have forgotten, has a husband. I haven't had a date in years. My sister is probably going to have children soon. I know they've been talking about it. I don't have any prospects for dating. There's not even anybody on the horizon. My sister loves working with little kids at church. I am no good with little kids. My sister is a pastor's wife. She even plays piano for the church. I can't do anything like that. I can't play the piano or sing. Teaching and preaching or even working with little kids was not on my radar screen because I had been taught that women can't teach or preach. And as far as I knew, the only way women could contribute meaningfully to the church service was with music. And I couldn't do that either because nobody, none of the churches I grew up would have liked a saxophone. So I'm done. Okay. My sister grows her own vegetables. I can't even keep a cactus plant alive. My sister cans her fruit and vegetables. I don't even like cooking. My sister can sew her own clothes. I can't even put a button back on without it looking bad. And that's true. Jeff still sews his own buttons back on. You get the idea, okay? Suddenly God spoke to me. There are very few times in my life, I can count them on one hand, when I've heard God's voice so clearly that I knew it was him. This was one of those times. It wasn't an audible voice, but it might as well have been. He said, you are not your sister. That stopped me in my tracks because I instinctively also knew that what he meant was, and that's okay. That was my first inkling that God does not have a one-size-fits-all way for a good Christian woman to be, that I had other gifts that he wanted me to use, and I didn't have to look or act like my sister in order to please him or fulfill my purpose in life. The church I was part of then was large and had a good singles group, but it still tended to treat us as junior adults. You know what I mean by that? Like we weren't quite as mature spiritually or emotionally as married folk. I think that's because many churches are not sure what to do with single adults, especially if they're not, they weren't widowed. They shrug and they say, singleness is just temporary, and they often treat young never-marrieds, especially of both sexes, as junior adults. Here's a news flash. There are quite a few single people in the Bible's pages, and I'm not even counting those who were widowed. These singles were never treated as less than or as junior adults by God. Can you think of any? Elijah, the prophets Elijah, Elisha, and Jeremiah were single. Okay, do you know that? Daniel and his three friends were single. Nehemiah was single. In the New Testament, we have, of course, Jesus and Paul, 
But there were also Jesus' good friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Maybe that's why they were such good friends, huh? And as well, there was Mary Magdalene and Lydia, the first convert in Philippi. Did I get that in there? Oh, sorry, that's back. Okay. As for many other women in Scripture especially, we are simply not told if they had husbands or not, because although their ministries are mentioned, there is no link to a husband for them. Miriam, sister of Moses, could have been married, but we're not, her husband is not mentioned if she was, and she was a prophet. Shira founded three cities in First Chronicles. Phoebe, a leader in the church of Centra near Corinth. Iodia in Syntyche, I had to look up how to pronounce that name, Syntyche, in Philippi, Nympha in Colossae, Chloe in Rome, I mean Chloe in Corinth, Claudia in Rome, Rhoda and Dorcas in Acts, Trufena, Trufosa, Persis, Olympus, and another Mary in Rome. Oops, sorry, go back there. Okay. When the, see, all of these women and men were valued for who they were and what they did, and it may well be that none of them became wives, husbands, mothers, or fathers. When the church looks at single adults as junior adults rather than valuable members who are not just in waiting till they can answer their highest calling, we run the risk of them leaving because they don't feel we have any place for them, which is bad for all of us. It's bad for them, and it's bad for us. God does not view single adults as less than or marking time, and neither should we. It's not even correct... That doing what a man can't do is the purpose for which woman was created. If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and look at the actual Hebrew, we might be surprised at what we find. First, let's dispel the notion that Adam and Eve had those names before they sinned. They didn't. They they only became Adam and Eve after the sin. Before that, they were both Adam. They were male and female within it. Okay. Adam is, excuse me, <clears throat> is the Hebrew word for human. Not a male human, just a human. God called the first human Adam because he was made from the Adama, which is clay. It's a pun. Okay? Literally an earthling from the earth. And just like earthling, Adam is a gender-neutral term that includes both the male and female humans in Genesis 1 when they are given their commission of multiplying and managing the earth and its creatures. Male human, by the way, in Hebrew is ish. Female human is isha. Interestingly, the word ish is not found in the text until there is an isha. Before the woman is created, the Adam is not specified as to gender yet in the Hebrew. doesn't mean it wasn't a gen- a one gender or the other. I'm just saying that the text doesn't spell it out. Okay. You can't tell this from English translations because both the words Adam and Ish are translated as man in many translations and that we use masculine pronouns. But that's not necessarily the case in Hebrew. In Genesis 2, after we see how everything God created was good, God looks at the Adam by itself in the garden and says, it's not good for the Adam to be alone. I will make a helper fit, it's also corresponding to suitable meat, depending on your translation, for it. Wait, doesn't that imply that it's not good for people to not be married? Nope. Because the word alone is lavado, which comes from the root word bad, which means separation or apart. 
That is, the emphasis is on existing apart from or separate from others of the same kind, or as a part existing separate from the rest of its whole. Forms of this same word are used elsewhere in Scripture to describe such things as a branch of a tree being separated from the tree and the other branches, or when Joseph ate by himself or apart from both the Egyptians and his Hebrew brothers in Genesis 43, or separating some sheep from other sheep. The idea seems to be of a person or a thing that is like others, but is separated from those others that are like it. This human is separate from anyone like himself. He is lavado, alone. This is about wholeness and relationship. God is not saying that it is not good that the man has no one with which to reproduce or be married to. God is saying that it is not good that this single human has no other human with which to have any sort of relationship at all. Okay, but... What about woman being created as a helpmeet or helper fit for the man? Doesn't that mean that a woman needs to be married in order to be that helpmeet, that reason for which God created woman? Again, this is a misunderstanding of the Hebrew. When God calls the woman he creates, he calls her a helper fit or helpmeet, depending on your translation. The words are ezer kenegdo. Ezer is the help or helper part. And konegdo is the meet or fit or corresponding to or suitable or however else your translation does it. In English, the word helper often implies a subordinate status. Even a toddler can be a helper, right? But the word azer is different. Azer, <coughs> excuse me, azer uh, means help, strength, or rescue. It is used 21 times in the Old Testament. And the vast majority of those times, it refers to God. Let me say that again. Azer is used 21 times in the Old Testament, and the vast majority of those times, it refers to God. Think of the Psalms, where it says God is our help or our strength in times of need. That's Azer. And Azer is the kind of, of doctor, is the kind of help that a doctor gives to a sick person, a lifeguard to a drowning person, a teacher to a student, or fresh military troops coming to the aid of weary ones on the brink of defeat. Azer is used that way in scripture. Azer has connotations of helping from a position of superior strength or ability to help someone who would suffer or be inadequate without that help. If God had not added the word connecto to modify the kind of Azer the woman is, then one could argue that women were superior to men based on Azer, but that is not the case at all. Konegdo means face-to-face, equal to. Thus, women were not created to do only what men can't do. God created women as a powerful help, rescue, strength to men as equals, not inferiors, not superiors, but equals. In other words, we are social beings designed to need each other designed to work together. God intended for men and women to work together as equal partners in all that we do, whether that is in marriage, society, church, or what have you. Now, some Christians teach that men are the priests of their home, responsible to present their wives and children blameless to God, which is a misunderstanding and misapplication of Ephesians 5. When a man is told by some that he alone alone is to lead and be responsible for the spiritual development of his family, 
This puts a heavy weight on him whether he realizes it or not. He is trying to bear alone what he was not meant to carry by himself, a load, in fact, which God created woman to help carry. Besides, the idea that the man is the priest of his home so that he acts like a mediator between his family and God is not biblical. Hebrews 4.14 tells us that Jesus is our priest. Priests are mediators between people and God. That's the role of a priest. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 tell us that Jesus is the only mediator between humans and God. In the home as well as church, men and women should be leading together. Some Christians today are not the only ones who make the mistake of thinking that a woman's primary value is in being a mother, which goes back to our mom shaming. In New Testament times, about the main, if not only, thing women were valued for was as a mother of sons, not even just a mother of daughters, but a mother of sons. The way a woman could be blessed by God the most, so the thought was, was if these sons grew up to be godly men. Women whose sons became rabbis or great teachers were even more blessed. And every woman back then knew that the mother of the Messiah would be the most blessed woman ever, period. So when Jesus was teaching the crowds one day in Luke 11, a woman got overcome with emotion at realizing he was such a great teacher and possibly even the Messiah. And she shouted out, blessed is the mother who bore you. Okay. What did Jesus reply to that? Did he say, darn right, my mother's the greatest woman ever. Or even, yes, my mother is truly blessed. No. Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. With that statement, Jesus corrected the notion that the greatest thing a woman could do was be a mother, even the mother of the Messiah. The greatest thing for any person, male or female, is hearing God's word and doing it. This idea is echoed again in Matthew 12, where Jesus is teaching and some, some of his family arrive and want to see him, but they having trouble getting in through the crowd. So they send a message to Jesus that his mother and brothers want to see him because they figure, hey, mother, you know, he'll, he'll stop for that, right? So what does Jesus do? Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Now, neither Jesus nor I am saying that motherhood or fatherhood is not important. It is very important. Those are very important things. But Jesus teaches that it is not the most important thing. In Matthew 12, Jesus shows us that even his mother did not take precedence over his followers. That Mary learned this lesson is seen by the end of the Gospels, where we see her traveling with Jesus and his disciples. Being Jesus' follower is more important, a higher calling, if you will, than being a mother. And that, if that was true for the mother of the Messiah, then it is true for us as well. I believe that the church is in danger of making the institutions of marriage and family into idols. Some of us care more about protecting those institutions than protecting the welfare of the individuals in those institutions. And my brothers and sisters, that should not be... Okay, but still, hearing scripture and obeying it sounds rather vague. Do we have any more to go on? Why, yes. Yes, we do. Okay? <laughs> As Jesus was teaching, someone asked him what the greatest commandment was. That's another way of saying, what is the most important thing I should do? Okay? 
Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel. Listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some translations say soul instead of being, but the the meaning is there. Okay, Uh, what does it mean to love God with all your heart, with all your soul or being, and with all your strength, and with all your mind? Is anything left out? Can you think of any part of us that's left out of that? I can't think of anything left out. When we love someone like that, when we truly love them, what priority do they have in our lives? First, yeah. Okay. Another thing Jesus charged us to do that is part of our highest calling is the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. Okay, excuse me. If you have children, then nations can include them because nations includes everybody, okay? Because when it says go, the Greek is closer to as you are going, make disciples. That is, as you live your life, as you go about doing what you do, make disciples. It's not a special thing that you stop the rest of your life in order to go do. It's what you should be doing naturally as you live your life. If we are loving our neighbors, if we are loving God with all our being, and we are loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, sharing the good news is something that should happen naturally. I believe that scripture teaches that every Christian's highest calling can be summed up by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pause here and recap what we've done so far before we get into how we deal with the shame. We noted that even though the original request for this sermon was about moms, we all feel shame. We looked at the difference between guilt and shame. We looked at where shame comes from, which included confusing an important calling with the most important calling. We looked at scripture to see what everyone's highest calling is, being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So knowing all of this, what do we do differently? When we walk out of here, what do we do differently? Well, one of the things we need to do is figure out whether what we're feeling is guilt or shame. Sometimes it's easy to get them mixed up when we're in the middle of those feelings. Maybe this will help. So guilt, I did a bad thing. Shame, I'm bad. Do you see the difference? Guilt, I need to tell God, my child, my friend, whatever, I was wrong and ask for forgiveness. Shame, I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to be forgiven. Guilt, I need to learn to do this thing better. Shame, I must be a terrible mom, dad, person, whatever, because I don't know what I'm doing. Guilt, I failed when I tried to do that thing. Shame, I'm a failure. You see the difference? If we look at this and decide that what we're feeling really is guilt, talk to God about what we did, and ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 promises that if we confess our sin, he will forgive us. Not he might forgive us if what we did wasn't too bad. Okay? If, <clears throat> if there is a person, even if it is our child, that we need to talk to as well, we should go to them and tell them we are sorry and ask for forgiveness. 
then we should purpose to change our wrong behavior and work toward that end with God's help. That's if we're feeling guilt. But what, is it, what if we're feeling shame? We ascertain where it's coming from because that will help us to, two, choose a healthy response. Three, remember what is most important. So let's look at each of these in turn. Ascertain where, is it, where it's coming from. Feeling that we can't really have been forgiven for that. Okay? There is, a specific, there is no specific behavior tied to it, but I feel worthless anyway. Or it's coming from other people. Okay? So that's that. Choose a healthy response. And trying to overachieve and giving up is not it. Okay? If we are playing tapes like, I'm stupid, I'm a failure, or I'm bad, over and over in our heads, we need to hit the stop button. Stop those recordings, stop those tapes. And we need to remind ourselves that God loves us and we are forgiven. Then we need to substitute new tapes. Sometimes we might need professional therapy to help rewrite the tapes in our heads, and that's okay. Going to therapy does not mean that you don't have enough faith. Okay? Now, as an aside, because parent shaming is what started this message, here are some ways to specifically deal with parent shaming if you're trying, other people are doing this. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to just know how to do everything. I can ask for help. I can listen to honest criticism, consider it, then decide whether or not to change what I'm doing. Just listening to honest criticism or even criticism doesn't mean you're promising to do it. So you can listen to it and then decide later. It's okay to get up and walk away from shaming. If someone was shaming you for not being able to breastfeed your adopted daughters, it's okay to get up and walk away. Okay? Now, the third thing we said we needed to do with dealing with shame is remember what is most important. Being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Hearing the word of God and doing it. Loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving my neighbor as myself. In short, being Christ-like. Okay? If some of this sounds a little too vague, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan to answer the question, who is my neighbor? We saw the video at the beginning of the service. But in case someone's not familiar with it, I will... Recap it really quick. A man is traveling in the countryside. He's attacked and beaten by gang thieves. He's stripped and left for dead. First a priest and then a Levite pass by, seeing him lying there, but they keep on going. These were both people that Jews in Jesus' day would have expected to help. Think a pastor and a Bible study leader or something. This is about the same. But these did not stop. Then a Samaritan stops and goes to the man. As people are listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have expected the Samaritan to hurt the guy more. This is because they thought Samaritans were terrible people. They thought they were inferior racially. They thought they were inferior morally. They thought they were inferior spiritually and even politically. Think of a people group that is often thought of that way. A godless person of the opposite political party, if you will. Or maybe even, I don't know, a racial minority or an illegal immigrant or what have you. That's what a Samaritan would have sounded like to the people in Jesus' audience. Jesus surprises everyone, however, by having that guy, 
that guy they expected to hurt him, that guy who was the most not like us, stop, help, and even go above and beyond in his help by paying two days' wages for the man to be nursed back to health. I'm sure there were audible gasps and grumblings in the crowd. Then Jesus asked, who was a neighbor to the hurt man? What was Jesus' point? Anyone? Who is our neighbor? Everyone. Everyone is our neighbor. And we are to love them. Love everyone as we love ourselves. How do we love them? It's not warm, fuzzy feelings. Love in action is finding out what someone needs and then moving to meet those needs. That is what Jesus did for each of us, including those who mocked and spat on him as he hung on the cross. Over and over in the New Testament, we are told to be like Christ. What was Christ like? Paul gives us a snippet in Galatians 5. Can you say the fruit of the Spirit with me? Reading across, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did Paul say that any of these are just for men and others just for women? Let the women do the gentleness and we guys will take care of the faithfulness, you know? No. Uh, Is Jesus a model only for men or for women too? Being Christ-like, hearing the word of God and obeying it, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, none of these things come in different lists. There is not a blue list for men and a pink one for women. So have you guessed the meaning of this sermon's title yet? With apologies to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the meaning of life is not 42. It's fulfilling our highest purpose. And our highest purpose is to be like Christ. And Christ-likeness is as Rebecca Merrill Gruthius has said, does not come in shades of pink and blue. Each of us will have a different... Oh, I should have done that one there. Sorry. Each of us will have a different important purpose in our life. If we marry and that marriage produces children, parenting is, of course, a very important purpose. But even that is not our highest purpose. If we think it is, if we are going to feel like failures because not one of us knows what we're doing all the time, and even when we do know, we're not always great at how we carry it out. Pursuing a good career for anyone is also an important purpose in our lives. But if we confuse this with our most important or highest purpose, we will be left feeling unsatisfied and frustrated. If those who are single or don't have children live their lives believing that they have missed their highest calling because of that, then they will also feel like failures. That is not God's intention. When we are feeling shame, whether it is coming from outside or inside, about not measuring up, shift your focus from an important purpose to your most important purpose. Remember, you are not your sister. You are not your brother. If you focus on hearing God's word and doing it, loving God, loving your neighbor, following the Holy Spirit's guidance as you do the next thing in your life, you won't need to worry about whether you are being a decent enough parent or whether you are missing out on your purpose in life. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that we must keep our eyes on Jesus who leads us and makes our faith complete. When we learn to drive, we find out that wherever we fix our eyes is where the car is going to go. Fix your eyes on Jesus and you can't go wrong. 
As the band comes up, we're going to sing a very short, simple song, With All My Heart by Dale Seacrest. I think that's how you pronounce it. It is a prayer based on this highest purpose Jesus outlined. If you don't know it, don't worry. It repeats enough that you'll be able to chime in. I'd like us to let this song be an honest prayer for you as you sing it. We will have our tithes and offerings now as well. Our ushers will.